Great day, huh? Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to the book of Ruth. We're going to carry on with our study in the book of Ruth this morning. Hopefully when you came in, you received a copy of this paper. If you did not, raise your hand and uh, do you guys have more? Just uh, keep your hand up and one of these young fellows will get you a copy, I believe. If you need a pen, I think they are also handing out pens or pencils, too, because this is a uh, <clears throat> workshop this morning where you're going to be filling in some blanks on the paper, and I did not know all the answers, so you have to fill in the blanks that I didn't know about or I don't know about. <clears throat> so last Sunday, we began our study in the book of Ruth, uh, and it begins with a story of a prodigal family. The story is about a married couple who had two sons, and they lived in the little town of Bethlehem. During their time there, the Lord sent a famine into the land, and a famine drained the land, and the people were hungry. But it was God who brought the famine to the land, and it was because of Israel's sin. And God used the famine to chastise or discipline the nation of Israel to bring them back to himself. That was the purpose of this discipline. But in, in the reason that he did this was because they had turned their back on the true and living God, the only God there is, and they had turned their hearts to idols. Well, there was a family living in Bethlehem. Elimelech was the father. Naomi was the mother. They had two sons. And um, they looked at the famine and they said, nah, I don't want to be a part of this. And so they packed their bags, they packed their things, and they decided to move to a foreign land, a far country, the land of Moab. And there in Moab, they thought they had escaped God's judgment. But what they experienced in the land of Moab was far worse than a famine. So Elimelech, it says in the scripture, went to sojourn. In Moab, We don't use that word so much anymore, but it just means he went to Moab to live there for a little while. That was his goal. I'm just going to go temporarily. When the famine's over, we, we dodge the bullet, we'll come back home, we'll enjoy the blessings of God once again. But we're not going to stay and suffer under this famine. And so really, he was, it wasn't where God wanted him to be. God didn't want him to leave Israel and go to the land of Moab. God wanted him to stay in the fire to stay in the famine, if you will, and to um, learn what God wanted them to learn. That was to humble themselves before God, to cry out to him for forgiveness of sins, and to be restored once again to a right relationship uh, or fellowship with God. So he went to sojourn, but he was running from God. And Elimelech stayed, it says, in the first part of uh, Ruth chapter 1, and settled into the life of Moab. And there he stayed in a far country. And there in the land of Moab, God took his life. Which is better, to stay and endure punishment in a famine or to leave and endure death 
And that's what he chose. He went and he died there in a strange land. And so now Naomi, his wife, former wife, was a widow in a strange and foreign land. And Naomi's two sons married two Moabite women. And she waited, of course, as any grandmother would or any, any mother would when their sons get married. When are the babies coming? Hint, hint. When are you having kids? And for ten years, she waited. And both women were barren. God withheld uh, children from both of them. And ten years more, Naomi and her son stayed in Moab. And soon, her two sons died as well. And now we have, we left the story last week with three widows, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. And this is where we pick up our story this morning. But before I do, I want to... Take, I want you to take a look at the screen and the paper in front of you. Get out your pens or pencils, and I want you to start filling in some blanks here. So you're given uh, a paper, or we see a paper on the screen that has two lines that run from the left of the screen to the right. And um, there are two lines on your paper as well. So we're going to get to the top line in just a minute. The bottom line represents your life. Okay, this is your lifeline or your timeline, and I want you to begin to fill it in. So I know something about your lifeline, and that is you were born. I just don't know what year it was, okay? So I want you to take your pen and at your birth, put down the year of your birth, whatever year that is. That's your starting point. If I was doing it today, I would put down 1958. It's a long time ago. Then, near the end of the line, I have another mark, and that's where we have the number 2014. That's where we are today, June 1st, 2014, Fremont, California. Okay? That's where we're at right now. Now, notice how little of the line is left. I did put an arrow there, had an arrow placed there, so that you know that... 2014 is, at least right this second, is not the end of your life. But I don't know how many years you have left. I don't know if this is the year that you'll die. I don't know if it'll be next year or ten years from now. I have no way of knowing. But God knows. He has given you an appointed number of days from the day you were born until the day you die. I just don't know how many that is. So we'll leave 2014 as the terminus right now on that side of the screen. But I don't know how much time you have left, and neither do you. Now, the line is a tool, and I use this tool quite often as I share the gospel with people. Sometimes people are confused as to where they stand with the Lord. They've had some religious experience. Chess was telling us about that this morning. She said, you know, I grew up in a Catholic church, but I really didn't know God. I really didn't know who Jesus Christ was. I didn't know that Jesus could save my soul, and I could have my sins forgiven. How many of you in your life, before you, before you came to know the Lord, had experiences where you heard about God, you heard about the Lord, okay, before you were saved? Okay, almost everybody in the room. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at your timeline, your lifeline, and see that in every person's life, God intersects your life at certain points along the way and the purpose of this is for him to draw you to himself. And every time he does this, 
you're given an opportunity to, to trust him, to believe in him, to have your sins forgiven, or to walk away. That's your choice. And God gives us that choice. It's incredible. But he gives us that choice. He doesn't give us an unlimited number of intersections in our lives. There are few. And there are some, and they're, they're very real, and we need to pay attention to them. So we're going to take a look at this amazing story of Ruth, and we're going to draw out her lifeline today, and then we're going to compare her life to our life and see that God was not only pursuing Ruth, but God has been pursuing you too. So I don't know the full history of Ruth. We have just a very little uh, book in the Bible and a very little bit of her history, but we do know some things about her. And so I'm going to just make some assumptions, and I think you can uh, make them as well, that probably the first time that God intersects Ruth's life is when she first met her husband. Now, her husband wasn't God, so don't confuse what I'm saying, okay? But that was the first time that uh, God intersected her life. And so we're going to put that on the screen, and so we'll call it Ruth's marriage, or, or just marriage. You see, Ruth came from a people, the Moabites, and they were idolaters. They didn't know God, the one and true God. They worshipped idols, And so Ruth did not believe in the one true God. And we have to assume that she was raised in a home where she believed in and worshipped false gods, idols of her people, the Moabites. Now, I don't know your history, but maybe you came from a family like that too, where you were raised in a home where there were idols. Some of my kids have friends who, when you walk into their home, they have a little station at the very entrance of their home and it's, it's uh, a little um, uh, idol station, I guess you would call it. I don't know what they call it, really. But it's a place of worship in their home. And they offer fruits or vegetables to their gods. And that's where their friends are raised. They're, they're, they grow up in that environment. And that's all they know. They don't know the one true and living God. They know about idols. They know about um, false gods. I don't know if that's the way you were raised. But I can imagine that Ruth was raised in that environment where she worshipped false gods, the god of Chemosh and so on, that were worshipped by the uh, Moabites. And uh, she worshipped them because that's what her parents did. And they worshipped them because that's what their parents did. And they worshipped them because that's what their parents did all the way back to generations. They just kept following tradition. They followed the tradition of their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents. But they did not know the one true and living God. And just because a person has been taught this from their youth doesn't make it right. Just because you were raised in a particular religion doesn't make it right. For you see, there is only one true and living God. And this is what the one God says. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you Though you have not known me, that they may know that from the rising of the sun to its setting, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is only one God. There is only one God. Do you know him? So there was a time in Ruth's life 
living in Moab. I don't know how old she was. She might have been 18 years old, 19, 20, somewhere in that range, I'm guessing. So it doesn't really matter the age. But at some point, she met this family that had had run from God to the land of Moab. And she came across um, Elimelech and Naomi and her two sons. And she fell madly in love with one of the sons. And they got married. And it was at this time, for the first time, she was introduced to a family that, weak as they were, failing as they were, they still believed in the one true God. And they must have told her about God. They must have told her. And so that's the first intersection in Ruth's life, where she first realized that there is one true God and that he can uh, be believed. So now we're going to go to the... uh, So Ruth's birth date, I'm not sure what it is. I have no idea. But marriage, I'm going to just guess, 18. Just call it 18 for argument's sake. And that's where uh, she's married. First intersection in her life. Now, on your timeline, you already have your birth year. Okay, whatever that year is, put it down. So for some of you, that's just a few years ago. You're very young. Um, Joanne, I, I just talked to her this morning. It's her birthday. And I asked her, you know, are you also 39? And she said, yes. <laughs> or something like that. So, some of you are quite young. Some of you are older. Some of the space between the birth and and today is is quite long. But you have a timeline as well. And I want you to put the first intersecting line on on your line is how old you were when you first heard about God. When you first understood that there is one true and living God. How old were you? Maybe you were five or six. So if, you're, if that's how old you were, put it close to that side. You don't have to use the dots on, the screen, on your paper. You can put them anywhere you want to. Okay? Maybe you were a teenager. Maybe you were in your 20s or 30s. But at some point, you came to an understanding that there is one true God and that you can personally have a relationship with Him. Put that on your paper. It's true. And if you didn't know it before this morning, put it on 2014. I'm just telling you right now, on the uh, authority of God's word, there is only one God. And he can be known and worshipped, and you can have your sins forgiven. The second time that Ruth heard about God was probably during the time when this family celebrated the Passover. And it doesn't say that in the passage we're looking at, but they were Jewish people. And God had instituted a feast for the Jews to be celebrated once a year, every year, forever. And that was the Passover. What is the Passover, you say? So, let me, let me start with this first of all. It's quite likely that um, Naomi and Elimelech and the, the husbands shared with Ruth and Orpah the fact that God had delivered them from the land of Egypt. And this is what the scripture says. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Did you hear Chess say that this morning? I did. She said, there was an idol in my life, and that was my drawings. 
It doesn't have to be a stone idol. It doesn't have to be a wooden idol. It doesn't have to be anything like that. It could be anything that takes first place in your life and keeps God out. Whatever that is, that's an idol. That's putting something else or someone else in first place instead of putting God in first place in your life. Well, it's very possible that every year, for ten years, this family celebrated the Passover. It's the feast celebrated by the Jewish people to remember the one and only true God who defeated every false god of Egypt. And on the night they left Egypt, a lamb was slain, and the blood was applied to the doorpost and to the lintel, and it was in obedience to the Lord's command to do that. They, God was illustrating something by this feast, and here's what I'm going to tell you about it. We, we don't have time to go into all the details, but let me tell you a little bit about it. It was a feast where they were to take a lamb, and it was to be a perfect, spotless, healthy lamb. It was to have no bones broken. It was to have no flaws. It was to be a male of the first year, and it was to be killed, and the blood of that lamb was... Um, was uh, collected, and the blood was taken, and they were to dip hyssop into the blood and sprinkle it on the doorpost and across the lintel, because God said so. And he said, this is, uh, if you remember the story of the plagues of Egypt, there were nine plagues in Egypt that had basically brought the Egyptians to their knees. This was the tenth and final plague, and God had warned them that if they did not follow his instructions that he was going to kill the firstborn of every family throughout the land that night. And so they were given instructions on how to avoid the death of the firstborn. And that was to take the blood of the lamb and apply it to the doorpost and the lintel and to enter into the house and consume or eat the lamb completely and stay inside the home. And that night, when the avenging angel, or the destroying angel came to destroy the firstborn from every home, when God saw the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over that house, and that firstborn would live. But if he did not see the blood applied, the firstborn of everybody uh, in, in the nation would, I mean, in each home would die. And so that's the story. And so as they remembered what God did in Egypt so many years before, they would have told this story. They would have maybe even acted out this story and celebrated the Passover. And they would have told about how God had delivered them from the gods of Egypt and how God was the only true God. Deliverance. The Passover is actually a picture, an illustration of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist said of Jesus Christ when he saw him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as he pointed to Jesus, all of the Jews for centuries had been looking forward to the Messiah. And they had offered lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb as a, as a substitute um, for them and to cover over their sins. But it never took away their sins. And John was pointing to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who not just covers the sin, but takes it away. And the Bible says that when He takes away our sin, it is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. 
No more transgressions. No more sin debt. That's the salvation that God offers. Was Jesus qualified? You bet he was. The lamb had to be a perfect lamb. Was he perfect? It says in the scripture, he knew no sin. He did no sin. And in him, there was no sin. Perfect. Perfect lamb of God. Did Jesus, was he, uh, was, were his bones broken? No. In fact, it says this very plainly in scripture, that even when they went to the cross and they were going to cause the death of the three hanging on the cross, they were going to break their legs in order to make them die faster. When they came to Jesus... He had already given up the ghost. He had already died. And so they did not break his bones, thus fulfilling the scripture that not, no bones would be broken. Perfect. Male. Sacrifice. His blood was shed as a substitute. Just as the lamb's blood was shed as a substitute for the firstborn that night of the Passover. So Jesus died on the cross and his blood was shed on the cross as a substitute for our sins that we might have our sins forgiven, and that we might have a right relationship with God. Wow, what a story. And so, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ is, is illustrated by the Passover. Just as the families believed God and went into their home and they stayed there until the avenging angel had passed by, so we must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, have His blood applied to our account And in doing so, in believing on him, we can be saved and not suffer the consequences of our sins uh, for eternity. If we believe in God, we will be saved. It says in the scripture, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So I want you to look at your timeline again. And I want you to write down the first time that you can remember that you heard the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Write it down. What is that date? What is that time in your life? Were you just a child? Were you a teenager? Were you an adult? And when you heard that news, did you, at that intersection of your life, did you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and were you saved? That's a really important question to ask yourself. And I want you to think about the answer to that, and I'm going to give you just a minute to do so. And here's how we're going to do it. If the first time you heard that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and you say, yeah, I I believe that, I'm going to ask you the question, what changes did you see in your life since that time? I've heard many people say, you know what, I trusted the Lord when I was five years old. I heard that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I ask them the question when I go through a timeline like this in their life. What changes did you see in your life since then? And sometimes they look at me like a deer caught in the headlights. And they go, um, nothing. Did they really believe? Did they really come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? You see, salvation is life-changing. We are changed from the inside out. Not only are our sins forgiven, but God changes us so that we no longer dwelling or living or, or um, um, consumed by sin. So, no change, then I would leave the mark there, but put a question mark above it. Just say, is that really the time that I came to know Him? Okay? 
third intersection of, life, of Ruth's life had to be the tragedy that struck her family. Her father-in-law had already died. And now after ten years of marriage, her husband is suddenly uh, dead as well. She had already experienced sorrow in her life. We know that. Because for ten years she remained barren. What woman doesn't want to have children and uh, to raise them and to be uh, a happy mother? But she could have no children. But you could say, well, at least she had her husband. And after ten years, he was yanked from her as well. Death, I'll tell you something, death has a way of sobering us. It really does. Do you know what the Bible says? It is better to go into the house of mourning than into the house of praise. Do you know what that means? It's better for us as human beings to attend a funeral, to go to a funeral, than it is for us to go to a party. When you go to a party, you forget life. You forget the consequences of sin. You put it out of your mind because you're having a good time. But when you go into a funeral parlor or you go to a uh, graveside, it has a way of sobering us. And we begin to think, am I next? When is my time up? I'll never forget when uh, Bill McDonald was dying he was in the hospital for nearly a month, and I stayed there almost 24-7 for, uh, for the month of his um, remaining month of his life. His health was failing, and in his room, um, the door was often open, and there were other hospital rooms nearby, and I could hear things going on in the other hospital rooms as I sat there day after day. And as I, it really was, in many ways, a death ward. Because a lot of people died during the time that I was there. And it was quite remarkable to me to, to see firsthand uh, people experiencing death. Some of them probably for the first time. I don't mean they died for the first time. I mean experiencing, um, seeing friends or relatives dying uh, for the very first time. And um, as I sat there, there was a, one, one time there was a, person in the room next to, to Bill's room, and uh, I can remember that the family was very caring, very loving for, I think it was a father, I don't remember the full details now, but I think it was a father, a brother, a husband, an uncle, all of those things that that man was who was lying in that bed, and he was dying, and everybody knew it, and it was, they were just trying to make him comfortable. And the family would come day after day. In fact, there was just a steady stream of people coming and going and coming and going into this room. And um, as he was nearing the end, I could hear the, the people beginning to sob and to cry because they knew they were near the end. Finally, the man gasped his last breath and he died. And I have never in my life heard such wailing and crying as I heard that day. So intense was the, the pain that they were feeling that some of them literally threw themselves down on the floor in the hospital room there and could not be comforted. Their hearts were broken. Some of the family literally, as I said, threw themselves on the floor sobbing. And the anguish of that room was palpable throughout the whole ward. Death had struck. 
Well, death had struck home for Ruth, too. Her husband of ten years had died. She was alone. She was a widow, just like her mother-in-law. And also Orpah, uh, her husband, had died, too. And the anguish and the sorrow must have caused her to question her own mortality. If he died, am I next? If that happened to him, I know it's going to happen to me. What happens when we die? That kind of question must have come up in her mind. Where do I go? Every single person in this room knows that one day you will die. We were born and we're heading from the day of our birth, we are heading headlong to our death. The Bible says, It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. The Bible says, as I mentioned before, better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men. Death is the end of all men. And the living will take it to heart. It is a good thing for living people to, be, to experience uh, seeing other people die so that we might take it to heart and say, I need to be right with God. And that is an intersection in every human life. Death faces us square on. Some of you have lost a husband, a friend, a wife, a sister, a brother, uh, or a close friend. And with each passing day, we ourselves are closer to our own death. Death is a fact. And death came into the world as a result of sin. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. Sin is a crime against God. It is, and each sin is a capital offense against God. There's a death penalty that is attached to every sin we commit. And boy, are we ever guilty before him because we've sinned a lot. We sin and fall short of the glory of God. Ruth must have known this by now. It must have been very clear to her at this point. And if you didn't know it before today, you do know it now. Our sin separates us from God. And if we do not have our sins forgiven before we die, we will be separated from God for all eternity in the lake of fire. The Bible plainly teaches that. Hell is real. The lake of fire is real. And every thinking person has to come face to face with this reality. Just because we don't like the thought of it, you can't just wish it away. It's true. God says it's a real place where real people really do suffer for all eternity. And this is where God intersected Ruth's life for the third time. It has to do with a tragedy. And I know that God is intersecting your life or has intersected your life if you have experienced death of a family member or a friend or a loved one. I know that God spoke to you at that time because that's what he does. Some people are afraid when they hear that, and yet they still do nothing about their relationship with God. So next in the story, we're going to see what happens to Ruth and to her sister-in-law. So let's go to the scripture, and in Ruth chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. 
Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourself from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So I want to pause for a moment to say that Naomi had wandered very far from the Lord. But she was reminded, or she heard, about the goodness of God uh, when she was living in Moab. She heard that God had once again sent rain, He stopped the famine, and that now there was bread in her home country. I'm going to ask you a question. Was it the correction or the discipline of God that caused Naomi to return? Nope. When her husband died, that's pretty strong correction, if you ask me. When her husband died, where did she, what did she do? She stayed in Moab. I'm going to ask again. Was it the Lord's correction that caused Naomi to return? No. Even when her sons died, that wasn't the reason that she turned to go back home. I'm going to ask a third time. Was it the Lord's correction that caused Naomi to return? And the answer to it is no. It is the goodness of God that caused Naomi to return. And that's what the Bible teaches us. That it is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. And so I don't know, we don't even have a place for it on the timeline, but put a mark somewhere on the timeline where you realize that God has been good to you. You have life, you have health, you have things, you have a family. God has been good to you. Put that down there somewhere. When did you first realize that God has been good to you? The goodness of God leads you to repentance. God is good. And, when, and He was good when He sent the famine, trying to get them to repent and turn to Him. But Naomi fled to a far country. But after suffering such losses, she remembered the goodness of God, and it led her to repentance. And so Naomi was in the land of Moab, and finally she she remembered the goodness of God, and she turned, and she went back on the road to um, Bethlehem, Judah. That's where she was heading. That's repentance. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction in your life. And so the... um, Naomi is turning back to to the Lord. Naomi was not much of a witness, I will tell you that. But it's interesting, isn't it, that that in spite of her failings, in spite of her faltering, in spite of her sin, God still used her in this case here. And you know, we often become down on ourselves because of our sin. We should repent of our sins for sure. 
But God uses even the failing, faltering people. Listen, if God can speak through a donkey, he can certainly speak through me. And he can speak through you. God is good. Well, she witnessed to um, her daughters-in-law. And so she, she says, look, I'm going home. I'm leaving. I'm going back. And she turns to them and says, you go back to your family. You just return. Go back to your home. Go back to your family. I'm going home. But the two young women said to her, no, 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 we're going to go with you. We will be with you all the way home. And then she does something that I, I find incredibly um, difficult to understand. Instead of saying, okay, come with me, she turns them, and three times she tries to hinder them from coming with her. You say, why? And she's saying to them, why? Why would you come to, to uh, follow me? And she uses this illustration. I have no more sons in my womb. Okay? If you're looking for another husband, it's not going to come from me. I have no more sons left. And so, so I can't provide you with a husband. Second, I'm too old. I'm too old to remarry. And even if I could get married tonight, and I could be pregnant tonight with twins, are you really going to wait for them to grow up and marry them and have children? And finally, she says, would you really turn aside every other possible marriage proposal while you waited, even if all of that could happen? No, go back home. I've got nothing left for you. And then this was followed by more tears. This is twice in this passage they talk about the tears. And they all had a crying session and they used up a lot of Kleenex and their faces were probably streaked with mascara. But here's where the story really gets good. It says, uh, the fourth time, God was at this intersection of their life as well. And at this time, it has to do with salvation. So if we had put it up here, we could have had Orpah's timeline as well. And interestingly enough, her timeline is almost exactly like Ruth's. And so God intersects both timelines at the same time. And here he is working in Orpah's life and in Ruth's life, but the reaction of these two women is totally the opposite. Orpah listened to what, Ruth, what Naomi said. She kissed her mother-in-law and she returned to her family, and it says, to her gods. So she chose to reject the one true God, and she returned to the gods of her family. I want to ask you a question. What about on your timeline? When you have come to hear the gospel, and that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, how many times on your timeline have you, like Orpah, rejected that, turned the other way, and gone back to your old way of life. If you're doing that, it's clear that you're really not believing on the Lord. You never have been saved. And so I want you to think about that in your own life. Do you really know the Lord? Maybe you heard about salvation, your need of salvation, and like Orpah, you wept. She wept twice. But you've never repented of your sins and turned to him. Maybe your sins, like Chess talked about this morning, um, are your God. Maybe it's the sin of lying or stealing, the sin of immorality, the sin of covetousness or greed or the sin of pride. And that's keeping you from really trusting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Orpah felt the draw of her family. 
the draw of her gods, and she went back the other way. You know, the interesting thing, if you look at this story, she was touched emotionally. She was touched emotionally because she wept twice. She was moved to tears. And we could even say she kissed the preacher. Okay, Naomi was the preacher. And she kissed her. But she didn't believe in the God, the one true God of the Bible. And she went and left the other way. I want to ask you this morning, because this is where God in 2014 is intersecting your life, right here, right now. And he is offering to you the same thing he was offering to Ruth, and that's salvation, full and free, forgiveness of sins. At this intersection, Orpah goes home. What will you do with Jesus? At the same intersection, we have Ruth, and Ruth clings to Naomi. And as weak as Naomi is and faltering in her faith and her life, She still believes in the one true God who can save, and Ruth knows it. And this is the time of Ruth's salvation. Here we see Ruth, who has literally turned her back on her family, has turned her back on her gods, has turned her back on everything she has known. And she now comes to Naomi, and she says to her in one of the most one of the richest, clearest, and most repeated commitments in the Bible. This statement in verses 16 through 18 is so precious to people that many women use this uh, in their marriage vows. And they say, this is the kind of commitment I am giving to you as my husband. This is the commitment that Ruth was giving not just to Naomi, but to God himself. And this is what she says in verse 16. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you. Or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. What did Ruth say? I will not leave you. I will leave my family. I will leave my gods. I will not turn back. I will go wherever you go. I will lodge wherever you lodge. I will become like the people of God and your God shall be my God. That's salvation, folks. That's salvation. Your God, the one true and living God, here and now, I declare He is my God as well. I believe in Him. I trust in Him. And I'm putting my full weight and full trust in Him as my Lord, as my Savior. That's what she's saying. I will die where you die. In other words, I will never turn back to my old way. I will never turn from the Lord. And I'll be buried where you're buried. And only death will separate us in this life. So Naomi saw that Ruth was determined, that she was now a believer, and she stopped trying to push her back home. You know, sometimes it's a good test, isn't it? To really test where people are at and say, do you really believe? Do you really trust in the Lord? Why don't you think about it? I did that once. I I think I shared this with you. Um, Jen's not in the room right now, so I'll tell the story on her. 
when I led her to the Lord that night, I shared the gospel with her. I went through a timeline very similar to this with her, showing her how God had intersected her life over and over and over and over again, and how she had never really come to know the Lord. And I said to her, after I went through the gospel, showed her that Jesus had died on the cross for her sins, I said, this is a time of decision, Jen, where you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And I said, why don't you go home and think about it? And I did that on purpose. I was really pushing against faith and see, to see if it really was there. And she says, no, I'm not going home. I want to make things right with God tonight. I love it. That's the faith of a, a person who really means business with God and says, I don't want my sin anymore. I want Jesus Christ and I want forgiveness of sins personally. I want to trust Him as my Lord and Savior. So on Ruth's timeline, this is the fourth time that God intersects her life and she repents of her sin by turning from her people, from her gods, and by trusting completely in the, in, in the Lord for salvation. What's on your timeline? Some of you are just finishing up The Stranger on the Road to Emmaus and you have heard the gospel over the last three months and you have heard week after week what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you to save you from your sins. It's the time the Lord has been intersecting your life for three months. And I want to ask you, have you personally made a decision to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior? Why not do it today if you haven't already done that? Just as Ruth needed to repent of her past sins and her past life, so you must repent Repentance is turning from whatever it was that was dragging you to hell. And it's turning to the salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Ruth and just as Chess told us about her faith in Christ this morning, so you too must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Just as there was a time and a place for her to trust in the Lord, so this is the time and this is the place for you to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. The Bible says now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Chess quoted a verse. I want you to turn there with me. It's Romans chapter 10. And verse 9 and 10. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth that the Lord, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the offer that God has for you today, salvation. That's the intersection that we're talking about. And we see two women whose lifelines are almost identical. One turns her back on the Lord. The other follows hard after uh, God. And we're still talking about her 3,000 years later. What's on your timeline today? 2014. Make this the day that you come and trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior.
Our time is up. I was going to sing the song. Um, I'll just say the words to you. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me. The cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. The final verse of it is this. Will you decide now to follow Jesus? No turning back. No turning back. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you. We thank you so much for this story of Ruth and Naomi and Orpah and and the things that you did in their lives, the times that you intersected their lifeline and how ultimately you brought Ruth to yourself. We pray, Lord, that if there are any here today who still do not know you, that today might be the day of salvation for them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.